Um, starting then, as you can see on your sheet right there, uh, we're going to tell the entire thing by country, by region, and each one of these whiskeys uh, is going to have their proper role um, as a representative of that particular area uh, of the world. So, um, first thing, if you're typically, if you're drinking whiskey out of something like this, right, you're probably in a biker bar or, um, or you're at a fraternity or something like that, or you're in Julia. Is he out of the room? Uh, all right, look, I'm from Pittsburgh. I should know. We all learned how to drink whiskey the wrong friggin' way, okay? Right? Because we invented the shot of the beer there, right? So I already know. So in, in case you haven't done this yet, there is a little bit of homework here. These, that thing in your mouth that, with, that I'm going to be using for the entire hour right here, um, is, it's only got five flavors that actually involve in that, right? Sweet, sour, bitter, um, salty, and something called umami which is somewhere in the middle. And there are no regions. That region map has been disproved since the 1980s. Okay? Um, and yet a lot of people think this is really where we actually taste flavor. So it's not, right? It's actually up in here, right? It's specifically right up in there. That thing is actually attached right directly to your brain and all those little dendrites are inside of your mucous membrane. And they're just waiting for springtime when you've got all of those apple blossoms three blocks away that you're able to pick up with your nose. So that's how sensitive your nose is, right? So don't be sticking your nose in a glass of whiskey. I'm going to be watching all of you this entire weekend, all right? Because as soon as you do that, you have numbed out your nose and you've gone through a condition called a nosemia, right? Which is a it's actually it's a real word I'm looking at. <laughs> And it's a temporary shutting down of your olfactory system, right? So, however you want to snort your whiskey, do whatever, but don't do yourself, do your nose a favor. Because I know that at the end of the entire thing tomorrow afternoon, and someone's pouring a cast strength in that Glen Cairn glass, and they're sticking their nose in there. I know you can't smell the damn thing pulling out of there now. Okay, all right. I have no idea what your level of understanding of whiskey is. I always put a baseline, right? What's whiskey, right? It's this and this and this. It's one of probably one of four grains because why? Because those four grains, either wheat, barley, corn, or rye, have the most what? Sugar, right? And the distiller needs sugar. Then you add some water. And yeah, guess what? It's from a friggin' spigot, okay? <laughs> water from a spigot, all right? And then you add this cake of soap right here. Right? Now you get that cake of soap. Right? Just wondering where the last are going to be on that one. Right? Cake of soap in order to get what? Beer. beer. Right? Yeah. Now it's not beer you're going to drink. It's kind of a grainy alcoholic soup, you know. Yeah. Except you need that little puppy right there, which is the chemical bonding symbol for ethanol. Right? That's the only reason you need the beer. If you were making brandy, that would be what? Wine. Right? So you need some alcohol in order to actually then Put it in one of these explosive devices. <laughs> so think about what it is you're doing. You're creating a flammable and volatile liquid inside of a metal container under pressure using heat. That sounds like a friggin' bomb to me. Okay? <laughs> Alright? And then that little puppy gets, you know, sacrificed in there. And what comes out is going to be something called whiskey anywhere in the world, except depends on what country you're in, because every one of these countries has their own rules, and there's nothing that the United States likes to do is actually regulate alcohol, right? All the way down to how many Skittles are in the bowl, right? <laughs> Canada, <laughs> when you start a distillery in Canada, you don't hire a distiller, you hire a lawyer first, right? Because the lawyer has to take you through federal laws, provincial laws, excise tax, Right, Food and Drug Act, including all of the um, uh, all of the territories up there. You've got three things that you have to do to make a Canadian whiskey, but there's all of these other things that you can do, and we're going to address that today. And then Japan and India. Hey, 
goes, right? However, in Japan, it's really done by tradition. And when you think about Japanese whiskey, it's really the blender at the top who actually is the control uh, uh, person in this, entire, uh, in this entire scenario. Now, no regulations there until next year where they're going to put them in because prior to that, Japanese whiskey was all drunk domestically. Right? They weren't exporting it. As soon as they went to export, then they actually had the eyes of the world. And the eyes of the world means transparency. So now they actually have to get to the area of everybody else. But in India, they're still not sure about that yet. Most Indian whiskey is literally made from a molasses base on a five-column high-pressure triple distillation that's done in, in dis distillation in distilleries that are typically doing um, ethanol as well for... Uh, um, for gasoline and, and for fuel. So India is still kind of working their way up to there. Anybody know what IMFL is? Right, India made foreign liquor. It's essentially rum in a box with some whiskey mixed in, right? And then it's literally, it's in a juice box. I'm not even kidding you, right? Um, so that's whiskey. And this is why whiskey starts arguments, because no one can agree on what it is, right? Nobody can agree on what it is because of all these different regulations. We can't even agree on how to spell it, let alone actually how to define it. That brings us to the history of whiskey. And it comes down to three people. The history of whiskey in the Western world, Ireland, Scotland, the United States, and uh, Canada, based on three people. First of all, it was the farmer. Right? So the farmer had a lot of grain, and it would either rot or he put it into big vessels like that, and it would rain, and it would rot again. Couldn't get it to market, the wheel broke, whatever, it's going bad, right? About 10,000 years ago, he figured out, okay, that's actually a beer. And beer is really good, because beer is going to keep all of these microbes away that we're picking up in the water, because I've got all of the cows upstream for me now, right? <laughs> so now i got this little antiseptic in me. And it's actually doing pretty good for about 10,000 years. And then suddenly, suddenly, 10,000 years later, the distiller comes along, right? And the distiller says, hey, you know that beer that you got right there? Okay, that's going to go bad. It's going to get skunked. It's not going to travel very well. I'm going to take that and I'm going to stabilize it. And I'm going to stabilize it. I'm actually going to make it much more intense. Wow, there you go. I love that. And when he started doing that, the stuff that came out of the still ended up becoming more valuable than the stuff that was in the fields. And that brings our third player. <laughs> and I'll make the argument that him, in the form of the king, the prince, the state, government, whatever it may be, is more responsible for the flavor of that whiskey in your glass than any of the first two. Now, the distiller's not going to want to hear that, but it really is the tax man forcing the distiller over time in order to change, to innovate, to move, and to do things that they normally wouldn't do if someone hadn't been trying to always take something out of their pocket, right? That's the role of the taxman. There's one person, a plus one. We're going to get to that person in a little bit. Is that Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's not here to really appreciate it. <laughs> Irish whiskey, okay? 
However, I mean, you can have a malt whiskey, a grain whiskey, or something that's only made in Ireland called Irish pot still whiskey, which is a combination of malted and unmalted barley. Now, they're starting to do that here in the United States, which is really cool. They just can't call it pot still whiskey. They can call it Irish style, okay? So they kind of have like the EU lock on that. And if you put the grain whiskey and one or both of the others together, you're going to get a blended Irish whiskey, like... Jameson's, Tullamore Dew, Jameson's I think is what, number eight on the top whiskeys of all time, you know, in terms of volume, right? Um, so that's their blend, right? So that's Irish whiskey kind of like a, from a topographic, a topographic perspective. And that brings us to number one. Now this Writer's Tears is made from a distillery called Walsh Distillery and they're in the Carlow area, the Carlow district of Ireland. They built this place for you to come and visit. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you're in Ireland and you're doing a tour, you want to stop at Carlo's, uh, at the Walsh Distillery in Carlo. This was started, uh, uh, started by Rosemary and Bernard Walsh. So they kind of created a, a bottled Irish coffee back in the 1990s. So they started kind of like uh, from a food perspective and then eventually got into... Um, uh, got into distilling. Uh, they're brought in to uh, the United States here by Hodling and Co. And uh, they have a number of whiskeys, including the Irishman. You may be familiar with that as well. Now, the reason I like this, and one of the reasons I picked this, is because it's got that Irish pot still style in here. In this case, what they're doing is they're taking single malt whiskey and they're taking Irish pot still style whiskey, and they're blending those together without the benefit of grain whiskey. So when you think about grain whiskey, and you think about in colors, for example, as a painter, I've got this brilliant color, and this brilliant color, and this brilliant color, and this brilliant color, okay? And now I can blend those all together, or I can add some white. If I add some white, now I can really expand my palette out of what those colors are. And that's essentially the role of grain whiskey in blended whiskeys, whether it be Scotch or within Irish, okay? So what they're doing here is you're really getting the benefit of a brilliant red and a brilliant green brought together in this. So let's go ahead and, and nose this. Is this number one? This is number one. Yeah, actually, if you, yeah, it's going to be left to right. And if you follow like the, the guide up there, you'll see that that's, uh, it's going to go in that order as well. So yeah, so what are some of the qualities of um, pot steel style whiskey? Anybody know any uh, aromatic qualities? You're typically going to get, because of the unmalted barley, you're typically going to get some grassy, hay-like, and oily notes, starting in the nose all the way down through the palate and into the finish as well. Mixed, blended with the sweetness, the fruitiness of a single malt. That's really what kind of brings us both together and, uh, and makes it such an intriguing whiskey. Obviously, unpeated, although, anybody know like the history of peating in Ireland? There's a lot of it, right? And we're going to talk about that in a second. Sweetness off the top. Obviously, I'm going to get the honey notes from the expert in barrels that haven't been rinsed who was here for the class before, right? <laughs> and triple distilled. Triple distilled. That is not a rule in Ireland, contrary to popular belief. It is an option. It is an option. It is not a rule. Double distillation is the minimum. Triple distillation is an option if you desire to do that in order to make specific types of whiskey, and we'll get there in a second. Absolutely lovely. Drinkable, easy, and yet, unlike some Irish whiskeys that are a little bit too simple, you have the complexity of that unmalted barley in there that kind of makes it really compelling. Really nicely done. Again, with this, kind of like an understanding of really where the blender uh, is in, in terms of, um, of bringing this to life, you know. Uh, in Ireland and, and now in, uh, in, in very, very close to the Japanese mentality of actually using the blender as the, uh, the arbiter of what that commercial um, uh, event is going to be. Um, really lovely. This is a uh, uh, a little bit about uh, Irish whiskey. Um, if, uh, who's Irish? 
I'm in Boston, of course. <laughs> well, no, did I admit, did I ever tell you it's actually Celtic, not Celtic, but I'm not going to admit it. Anybody here Scottish? Oh, okay, good, right. So typically when I'm in a room full of Scottish and Irish people, I, I come up to the Irish people and go, you guys are Mexican. And then I come over to Scottish whiskey and I, and then I just get the hell out of the way. <laughs> There's going to be a fight happening there, right? So what happened was, however, in the 1820s, I mean, Irish whiskey ruled the world. Irish whiskey, there was no American whiskey of any, you know, uh, they're still kind of getting, getting it together. Irish whiskey ruled the world. As a matter of fact, after the phylloxera plague uh, in, um, in France that wiped out all of the vines, they wiped out, of course, not just wine, but brandy. And brandy was the drink of the continent, and it was replaced immediately by Irish whiskey. That's how popular it was. That's how tasty it was, right? And then, so you had about a thousand registered distilleries uh, in 1820, somewhere around there. By the time you got to 1900, you were down to 200. And by the time you got to the late 1980s, you were down to two. You had Middleton down here in Cork, and then you had Bush Mills up there in Antrim in Northern Ireland, right? And then 1987, the Cooley Distillery opened up, and um, they're now, of course, obviously owned by Beam Suntory. Um, Middleton um, is owned uh, by Irish Distillers, which is owned by Pernod Ricard. And uh, Old Bush Mills Distillery is now owned by House of Cuervo, right? So it's all over the place now. But what had happened in the 20th century, and I outlined it in the book, there were four main reasons that Ireland forgot that it had invented whiskey. There were four main things that happened early on in the early part of the 20th century. And so for most of the 20th century, there was no real Irish whiskey production of any great notice at all. Not until uh, John Teeling opened up Cooley, and then of course now, boom, right? So because of the craft movement that started here in the United States, it picked up in Ireland. We've got over 45 distilleries that are either online right now or about to go online. Their whiskeys are aging. And as you've probably seen, the Irish whiskey shelves in places like Julio's and other places are actually growing and growing every day. There's other ones. Now, typically, most of the whiskeys are coming initially, just like in the United States, most of the whiskeys, are, the, are the bourbons and the rice were coming from where? MGP, until the craft distiller had enough time to actually age it. Most of the whiskeys in Ireland were coming either from Bush Mills or from, uh, from Cork, but now these guys are actually have their stuff minimum three years. They're really kind of coming out in the market right now. And we are just now at the, actually at the beginning of the wave of Irish whiskey. So there's a big wave of Irish whiskey coming to the United States soon. How'd you like that? Yeah, yeah. Breakfast whiskey, man. Put that on your cornflakes, right? All right, this is Walsh right here. Um, pot stills, right? Triple pot stills. What's on the left-hand side? Column stills. Wow. So yeah, they are full fledged. They are they're 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 going to make everything there, right? And so and they're just now on their way. They actually got bought by another bigger company. Who bought them again? Yeah, somebody somebody bought them again. Um, and uh, so yeah, um, and they've got uh, they used to have a really talented distiller that I knew I interviewed, uh, but she's moved on. Um, this is Irish pot still uh, uh, Irish whiskey from a distillation perspective right here. Right? So typically under two distillations, you know, you're going to get up to a certain level, uh, but you can see that there's a, a, a center point right here uh, on your second distillation when you're coming up to a maybe about 69% alcohol right there, and then the triple distillation actually moves it up. Anybody know why we have triple distillation? The tax man. The tax man, right? Because the malt tax that was that's passed in Ireland uh, uh, on just malt uh, uh, on malted barley made all of the um, farmers say, "Okay, well, screw you! If you're going to tax the malted barley, I'm putting the unmalted barley in there." Okay, and then what happened was traditionally um, all of the whiskey ended up moving to Dublin, right? That's where you had your big distillers at Jameson. Powers and Rowe. That was the big three of Irish whiskey. And the fact is, because uh, they were so popular all over the world, 
they were making massive amounts of it, which means they had to actually open up their stills. If you go outside of the Jameson experience, you'll see one of the massive, one of the, some of the biggest stills in the world were there. Well, because the stills were so big, it wasn't getting enough copper contact reflux in order to actually take some of the badness out of the unmalted barley. Okay? So they started triple distilling it from there because every time you distill, what happens? It gets lighter and it gets sweeter. And that's why typically Irish whiskey has that reputation of being light and sweet, and it came from triple distillation and was primarily because of the unmalted barley that was actually in there. And, you know, if you taste, um, this right here is absolutely, also uh, try to grab Powers John's Lane. It'll really, really give you a great example of what that style was like from the, uh, the 19th century. And uh, this is cool. This is, uh, everyone's seen this, right? So this is a mass ton. And what they're doing is that they are soaking the, um, the, the grain in hot water. Uh, there's typically four heats that are done. And uh, what I love about this, look at the mash tub. Iron, man, right? Iron with rivets. It's awesome. This is like 19th century distilling right here. distillation work, right? You actually take that wash, that's the beer, and you pump that into a big copper pot. You light a fire up underneath, and then what do you start doing? You start actually boiling that until alcohol boils first before water, which is about 175, water's at 212. As the alcohol starts to strip off, right, it starts making its way up the tank, up the neck, and scraping the inside of this, actually microscopically taking some of the copper along with it, which is now mediating the taste of the sulfur that's actually down in here. So this is why copper is so important. The more copper, right, the lighter and the, uh, the, the fruitier, the cleaner it's going to be, right? And then it kind of comes up to here, um, and it goes down into a big um, bucket of cold water that all of the condensation happens in, and you do that twice, and that's typically pot steel distillation. It's been around for a long time. One of the things to remember is that we don't create flavor in the still, we create flavor where? Nope. Fermentation. It is done in fermentation, right? Fermentation, that's where flavor is created. What are you doing in the still? You're shaping it. You're shaping it, which is why you have all these different shapes of stills that create different flavors that come out of them, which then, of course, are going to be modified by the type and the age of the barrel that you put them in. Flavor starts in fermentation, gets shaped here. This is so incredibly important that it goes back thousands of years, right? As a matter of fact, the idea of boil, separate, right, goes back to the ancient Egyptians. And one of the first things that they were doing in ancient Sumeria, ancient Egypt, was they were making something that was like something called antimony. It's actually pulled out from rocks. It's a sulfur compound. And they were using that in a very fine powder form that used it as um, perfumes, uh, using it as digestives of, 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 of a day. And also, that black stuff that they put around their eyes was actually a medical pe preparation. And later on, centuries later, the Arabs referred to that black stuff as al-kul, which means to blacken in Arabic, and that's where we get the word alcohol, alcohol right? Yeah, and it was very popular, this antimony, because obviously it's still being used today. <laughs> Now, you have to jump a couple thousand years ahead to the Alexandrian Greeks, right? And Aristotle was thought to have actually tried a crude form of distillation in order to desalinate seawater. Now, obviously he failed. There was too much damn ocean and too little of a pot. Um, I, I, I would expected that from Plato, but I was disappointed to find out it was Aristotle. Um, so things don't really start happening until you come another couple thousand years to about the... 8th century, or the 9th century A.D., right? 
and that's the Muslim invasion of southern Europe. Now look what's going on right here. This is insane, right? So the um, Roman Empire had been gone for hundreds of years. Uh, the Byzantine Empire was broken up into the east, into the west, mostly centered around Constantinople. And over in the area that we call Asia Minor, that's where all of the western world's knowledge was actually sitting there, right? And then the Arabs get religion. Right? And with their religion, they go into their evangelical mode and start moving through southern Africa, up into the peninsula, up into, um, up into Europe. And they're bringing with them their religion, their mathematics, the concept of zero, architectural forms, astronomy, right? And this magic pot, this magic pot that can take the four elements of the ancient world. In the ancient world, we were made up of what? Earth, wind, fire, and water. And of course, as we all know, the first three were actually a pretty awesome jazz fusion band of the 1970s. <laughs> they move up into southern Europe, right? Now look at Europe. It's a mess. It's nothing. Nothing but tribal warfare, right? You got the Vikings actually coming down and actually uh, conquering up there in the UK. You got the Slavs, the Franks. The Franks were the worst. The, the, no one liked, because they would not only conquer you, but they would insult you at the same time. <laughs> and they insulted you because they were led by this guy, Charlemagne, right? And so, oh no, I'm sorry, that's Charlemagne the God. I actually meant uh, Charlemagne the King. And, um, but you know, it's interesting that in both cases, um, they were very, very frank. Right, so, um, and then what happens is by the time you get to the year 1000, at the turn of the millennium, you, someone got the idea, said, oh, how about if we take an alcoholic beverage and put it in that pot, and we'll transform that. Oh my goodness, and all of a sudden, brandy start happening in Southern Europe, because what do they have a lot of alcoholic stuff in Southern Europe? Wine, right, so they got wine, so someone had the idea, let's put some wine in there. You get your first... Brandies, and by the time you get to the 1300s, this brandies actually starts focusing around this one particular area that we now know as Gascony, where Armagnac comes from, right? And at one point, this one doctor, he's got, I got 40 things that we can do with Armagnac, including kill all those viruses and germs, and you know what? You got a problem, you know, you're out there in the war, and you come back, and you got an arrow on your head. Pull the arrow out, pour some of this on, get your ass back up. <laughs> It starts moving up into the Ural Mountains, up in the Caucasus Mountains, into the Slavic areas, where it's where our first, what we now know as vodka, starts coming from. By the time we get to the 15th century, we're starting to pick this up in this Celtic area and Gaelic area, up there in um, what we now know as the UK, right? And then, by the time they discover the New World, you got distillation popping up all over the place, right? Because the conquistadors, what did they bring with them? They brought like, you know, venereal disease and cockroaches, <laughs> and they brought distillation, right? So the very beginnings of what rum and mezcal and tequila start about then in Europe is just popping all over the place with distillation. The Dutch, which owned the ocean, right? And had all this fruits and vegetables that were dying in their warehouses in the Netherlands. They figured out, oh, I know, let's preserve it by actually using distillation, and then Juniper is really good for your stomach. Let's put some of that in. That's Geneva. Then the British come along and they create gin from that. And then the iPhone. <laughs> the iPhone of distillation. The column still. 1831. It gets, um, it gets patented by a guy named Ennis Coffee, right? Boom. The game changer, right? Paradigm shift right there. The whole thing changes from that point. I told you about the plus one. When the, the, when the Arabic monks, priests, warriors came into southern Europe, they, into, uh, 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 they met the only group of people who were able to understand the esoterica of what it is that they had, which was the only group of people who were literate, which were the monks and the abbeys of the ancient world, of the Middle Ages, right? And what do monks have more than anything else? A lot of time on their hands, right? So they take this ancient idea and they start playing around with this. We're pretty sure they're the ones who put the wine 
right? They're the ones who put the wine inside of a pot in order to boil that, right? So that was known as the water of life, aqua vita in the Latin church, right? And it gets into France, and the water of life is eau de vie, right? They still call it that today, right? Up into the Caucasus and in the Balkan areas, um, it's referred to as voda, little water, right? And then up into the Gaelic area where the Irish pronounced it as Ishkabeha, and the Scots pronounced it as Ushkaba, and the British, who've been trying to subjugate both of those areas for hundreds of years, take that language and simple it to Ushka, boom, whiskey, that gets us into Scotland. So what had happened was specifically, um, <laughs> what happened specifically was King, uh, uh, King uh, uh, Henry VIII obliterates uh, the Roman church in his kingdom, and what happens is all of the monasteries and all of the abbeys that had all of the scientists and uh, the research guys that were actually known as monks, now they were out in the world, and now they were itinerant distillers. And boom, this is distilling just makes this massive explosion all through that entire area. And that brings us to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> the land of myths, right? Okay. All right. Uh, so who actually had blue faces in Scotland? Anybody know? Pictish. The Pictish people. And they were when, Charlie? Way back. Yeah, like way back. Well, before... You know, Mel Gibson understood. Yeah. Was it your yeah. uncle, Charlie? Huh? Was that one of your uncles? Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say freedom for us? Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Scotch whiskey. I mean, oh my God. Are you kidding? This is insane, right? It's two types, five categories, and three of those categories have the word blend in it. No wonder it's so fucking it's disturbing to people, right? Because I see everybody standing in front. Of the whiskey, I'm going. I don't know. I'll just get some wine over here, right? <laughs> so that brings us to our Scotch whiskey, Old Pulteney, and I have been such a fan of this whiskey for years and years and years and years. And then when you find the history behind it and the story behind it, it's even cooler, right? So this comes from an area up in the northern part of Scotland, a little Viking town called Vic, right? which up until about 80 years ago, it had no roads going up there, so it was a fishing village that actually, um, uh, what's the little silver fish? Herring. Herring. They were no, it was the absolute the land of, of silver and gold. The silver was the herring, and the gold was obviously the whiskey. But the beginning of it is a really, really cool story that has a big effect today. So let's go ahead and nose this. And again, it's going to be light and fruity, very much like the... Um, I uh, like the Irish whiskey, but there's something very particular, especially for that, that, that uh, the, the seminar we had before about uh, barrel rinsing and everything. Look what is what they're doing. Mostly second fill American oak. Now, as we all know, an oak barrel is like a tea bag in five cups of water, of hot water. Every time you make tea in the next cup, you're going to get less and less of the tea. Same thing with whiskey in a barrel, right? They're specifically using second fill barrels here for a reason, right? Let's just go ahead and discover it. Part of the reason is right there, which is what? What do you get? So I get, and I hate doing this, um, I get tropical fruit notes in here. Tropical fruit notes. There's no peat involved in here. So yeah, some banana, a little bit of pineapple in here, right? And the reason is, is because they don't want the barrel overemphasizing the flavor of the whiskey. They went a long, hard way to get the whiskey that light and fruity. And it comes down to when they first started up, there was no roads up there. There were a fishing village. Where am I going to get my stills? My stills are down here in the mainland of Scotland right there. So now I have to get a boat. And I go down and to actually pick up the stills. And then I bring them back. And when I get out there, when I get back to where the big barn that I'm going to put the distillery in, I realize that, oh my God, we mismeasured the height of the roof, right? And this is stone and fat, and this is a mess, right? And 
And so you can just imagine like the distillery manager, the owner, just like jumping up and down on the shore right there and like he's all red and steam coming out of his ears, right? They wanted a lot of copper. They knew then that the more copper, the lighter and the fruitier the whiskeys are going to be. That's what they were looking for. And now what? Now we're screwed. Brilliant. Necessity is a mother. They created that. Somebody cut that neck off right at the pot line, and they took that extra copper, and they formed it into this big, massive, what we now call a boil ball, right? That allowed more reflux to happen to get that lighter, fruitier note, right? Every time, that's the wash still on the left. The spirit still is on the right. It has a boil ball as well, right? We've now redone the entire distillery, so we have height now. However, they kept that. And if you go to Forsyth, that's one of their four main styles of stills because of this mistake, right? Lush, fruity, doesn't have the maritime note that it used to have. It used to be called, it's called the maritime malt, right? There's a little touch of that in there, a little bit of saline. I hate saying that word because as soon as you say it, everyone says, oh yeah, I got it, right? It's like, you know, banana. All right, now everyone's going to taste banana, right? Okay. Um, 19th century technology. Anybody know what this is? What? Not a body. Not a body. The Porteous Mill. This is one of the other cool stories. That's 90 years old. That's at the distillery, the old Pulteney distillery. And the reason that's so cool is because they went out of business 30 years after they started. Because they built the damn thing so well, it never needed to be replaced. <laughs> it never needed maintenance, except by the guys at the distillery. So the company and Bobby, both of them, went out of business in the 1950s, all right? What's interesting is in the 1980s, we actually had the whiskey lock and everybody shut down. These things were sitting out there garage sales, right? Now people are picking up these Porteous mills. I was just at Springbank for a week doing um, whiskey school there. They've got an old Porteous mill and they've got the one guy in Scotland who actually fixes them. And it's all belts and everything like that, and this guy's hanging on the belt. I'm going, now that's a mechanic right there, right? Hanging on the belt in order to kind of move it on the roller, right? So this is some really cool old school stuff. And here's some other really cool old school stuff. 19th century distilling. There's a reason why whiskey tastes so <laughs> and there's a reason why whiskey distilleries are always by a waterway, right? Because water, look how much water, much energy is being used just to turn the paddles. Just to turn the paddles. Go into a craft distillery today, got it. Done, right? I'm going to do it all on my iPhone right now, right? So it's really cool. I love actually when you, you know, Who's been to Scotland, the distilleries here in Scotland? Yeah, oh good, so a good portion of you, right? Put it on your checklist. Also, before you die, go to Sky, right? So that's it. All right, that brings us to Canada. And Canada wasn't about whiskey, no, right? Crown Royal, actually the number three whiskey actually in the world, right? Um, Canada's not about whiskey, Canada was about rum, why? Because Canada was, like the United States, a province of the UK. Right? And they were about rum. They owned the rum trade, right? They owned the sugar trade, okay? So it was the rum that these hardy guys went out into the Western Canadian Rockies and they had rum in their side packs right there. And they established trading posts. Trading posts so that folks like you can wear lovely fashions like this. <laughs> Once you establish trading posts, then people come. And once people come, they stay. And once they stay, then they start farming. And once they start farming, they start milling. And once they start milling, then they start distilling, right? So if you look at kind of the progress that way, that brings these three guys up, right? 
Hiram Walker, Joseph Seagrams, J.R. Weiser, J.P. Weiser. Which one of these was born in Canada? Actually, uh, Seagrams was. Right. And one of the greatest takeovers in the world, he starts as a clerk for a milling uh, a, a facility. Within five years, he takes over control of it and switches it all to distilling. That's how Seagram started, right? Um, Hiram Walker, he's a native son. Where's Douglas then? Or where's Douglas? Massachusetts. Douglas, Douglas is at home. What is it? 20 minutes from here. There you go, right? Yep. Hiram Walker, native son, right, from here, right? And then J.P. Weiser from upstate New York, right? This guy is the guy that actually brought, made Canadian whiskey, not only Canadian whiskey, the best in the world and the top of the world, but he affects every one of our whiskeys to this day, especially and including Kentucky. Who's this guy? Sam Bronfman. Sam Bronfman, who bought the Seagram's distillery from the Seagram's family in the height of uh, depression and created an absolute empire of the 20th century. So much so that the first modern skyscraper in New York City was built with his name on it, the Seagram's building, and he was also known to be quite a fashion plate. <laughs> We're going to talk about J.P. Weiser's. Remember I told you there's three things that you have to do in, in uh, uh, um, Canadian whiskey. It has to be fermented, uh, distilled, and aged in Canada. It could be in a, a barrel no, long, no higher than seven, uh, 700 liters. Um, and it has to be aged a minimum of three years. Sounds a lot like Scotland, of course, exactly does, right? <coughs> However, there's things that you can do, and this is what led to the downfall of Canadian whiskey, because they overdid it. What they overdid was the fact that they used something called the 9.09, or 111th, right? 111th, according to American tax laws, Canadian whiskey can have up to 111th, or 9.09% of any other flavoring agent in it, which is why Canadian whiskeys ended up on the bottom shelves, because a lot of that flavoring they put in there was all kinds of crazy stuff, and they were, and, you know, and under the Seagrams, they were actually putting a lot of brain neutral spirit in there as well, and that's why in the 2000s, when the American, when the whiskey world just like went explosive again, and all these whiskeys were at the top, they got left like a poor guy sitting at the bus station, you know, smoking a Galois and like looking out into the distance, right? <laughs> this is now what we're, our next whiskey is made by this gentleman up here, Dr. Don Livermore. Um, one of the actually few PhDs uh, in distilling and brewing. Um, Weiser's, um, Guterum and Warts, Lot 40, all made at the same distillery, all made by the same guy at the Hiram Walker Distillery, owned by Pernod Ricard, right? Right across the river from Detroit, Michigan, right? Now, one interesting thing is, is that this is an attempt to own up on that 111, because they were putting all this stuff in there and really degrading the flavor and the elegance of the whiskey. What he decided to do here is actually let's do something. They've got 0.05% of sherry that they actually put into this whiskey. 100% corn whiskey aged in secondary barrels, secondary bourbon barrels, right? And then with an addition of a little bit, 0.05 of sherry that legally is allowed to be put in there. Beautiful nose, lovely, lush. I was like everybody else, Canadian whiskey, are you fucking kidding me? No. And then I actually met John at a whiskey festival and I went through the entire line that he was tasting me and I, boom, I had this Wow, holy cow, the 18-year-old, the 15-year-old, the lot 40, all of that stuff is great. Why they're different is this, they own the column still. Canadian whiskey owns the column still, like no other country. And the reason they do that, every whiskey is done double column still first. Double column still first, and what Don told me is we don't want something ending up in a barrel that in 18 years I open that barrel up and I can't use it. 
So that means they are now bringing the whiskey down to a point where he understands every molecule that goes into the barrel. The other thing that they do is they distill separately and then they blend. They take all of their rye, distill and age separately, corn, wheat, barley. So now they are blenders as well as distillers. That allows them to make a broad array, array of whiskeys from Canada, which is one of the reasons that Seagram's was so big. Because what Sam Bronfman did was instituted for the very, very first time since um, uh, James Crow back in the 19th century, QC, quality control. The quality control that he introduced into whiskey is why you love Four Roses right now. Because that is a direct benefit beneficiary of Sam Bronfman's QC idea about and I was just talking to Charlie Nelson from Nelson Brothers Greenbrier. What he didn't know is that Bronfman disassembled his great-grandfather's distillery and brought that up to Canada in the height of, um, in the height of uh, Prohibition. And that's actually up in LaSalle, Canada. That's actually now their, the main blending lab for Diageo in um, Diageo and Canel. So what do you think about that? This is lovely whiskey, right? I think for me, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a like, wow. Holy cow, really? Is that good? Has a nice dry finish on it, which makes it great for what? Cocktails. Everybody knows how this works, right? This is the coffee still, right? The geek alert on this, right? So instead of putting a pot full of, um, of soupy mixture, right? I'm going to pump the soupy mixture up into the top of this column. Pump it. I've got plates, all the plates. Oh. <laughs> I was going to improvise, but I'm going to probably break something. Um, plates, plate, 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 full of holes. Plates are made out of copper, right? Pump the beer down here, the beer falls. Plate to plate to plate to plate to plate to plate. The steam coming in from the bottom, boom, 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 like that, making the entire thing hot under pressure, heating up all every time. You come to an area where steam meets the beer, alcohol. That simple. It was um, first created uh, in order to separate um, sugar from beets. And alcohol, literally nothing to do with it. And coffee didn't invent anything. He was a great tinkerer, and he understood as an excise man exactly how whiskey gets made after 30 years of being on premise, right? And he took a previous patent and then made some modifications and then patented the what is now known as the coffee steel, right? So he got kind of got his name on it. Alright, that's what the inside of it looks like. So these are like bubble caps, right? Bubble caps on each one of the plates. They're perforated so the steam goes up through it. And here's a whole bunch of different types of variations of columns as well. Um, very, very big in the U.S. Uh, in the craft movement because we now have these hybrids of pots and columns on top of them. That brings us back to the tax man. Anybody know what this is about? What's what? The tax man. This is the Whiskey Rebellion in my hometown, right, Western Pennsylvania. And there are two American idioms at work in this illustration. What are they? Tart and feather. Not on the rail. Not on the rail. I've been there. Yep. <laughs> right? Take them out of town on the rail, right? Now, what worries me about this illustration is this little guy right here. The guy on top of that pole is literally being tortured in the worst way, and he's like playing a pipe and dancing, and he was actually voted later on as most likely to have body parts in his cell. Um, so, poor kid was friggin' traumatized, right? And that brings us to bourbon in the United States, right? And now there's a whole bunch of myths about how it got into Kentucky. I will tell you that bourbon wouldn't be bourbon if it wasn't for one particular ethnic group. Nope. Nope. Jewish. Nope. Well, yeah, later on. Yeah. Germans. Germans, because what did the Germans do? They're the ones who actually kind of brought that taste of rye down there, because essentially it was actually just corn whiskey. You put it in a barrel for a while, awfully boring. Awfully boring. 
For the Germans, schnapps, right? Going back a couple hundred years, bring that together. When you actually look at all the old, old uh, Kentucky distillers, don't they all have like German names, right? Like Van Winkle. You think that's Dutch? No, it's German, right? Yeah. So the uh, you know not ethnic German. I mean not politically boundary German, but ethnically German. So yeah. So you have Scots Irish kind of bringing down there, right? You have the Germans that come in there and they actually create what was like just rough corn whiskey into what eventually became bourbon. Everyone's read all the books. You have to have to start like diving in between them to really kind of find exactly where the truths are in all of those. Mm -hmm. Now, can you make whiskey a bourbon whiskey anywhere? Except not now. Except that's in Prescott, Ontario, Canada, right? <laughs> and why is that? It was before 1964, and what happened there? There was a resolution, not an act, not a law, a resolution in Congress that gave bourbon a sense of its own place, right? Which was the United States. Gave champagne a sense of its own place. It gave cognac a sense of its own place. It also gave, you know, uh, pecorino cheese a sense of its own place, right? So they were all kind of like in the same resolution, right? Everybody knows this is pretty much what the recipe of grains looks like, right? Brings us back to our boys at Seagram's again, right? That owned this massive distillery on the Ohio River, right? They bought it from Rossville. It was known as the Rossville Distillery. They bought it in the height of Prohibition, right at the end of Prohibition, turned it into one of the largest alcohol manufacturing places in the world, right? Ended up becoming first called the Lawrenceburg Distillers, and now owned by a company called MGP, and now Luxco is involved in it as well, and Ross and Squibb, right? And so now, they're the ones who actually brought out all of these whiskeys at the very beginning of the craft whiskey movement, because everyone had the idea, oh, I'll just go buy some barrels, pennies on the dollar back then, uh, from this place, and I'll, let, I'll, I'll create a brand, and now all my stuff's going to sit in a barrel for a couple years until I'm ready, high west. Right? <laughs> yeah. David was absolutely right out in the open about it, too. Right? Nothing wrong with that, including my friend, Dave Schmier, who made this stuff called Redemption. It was one of the biggest selling rye whiskeys of the time. Dave went ahead, successfully cashed out of that, sold it to a larger company, and he started another company called Proof and Wood. And now he's doing the exact same thing. He's taking barrels of selected barrels of MGP whiskey. He's one of the few that actually have a long-term deal on this. And he is putting together a whole array of whiskeys. This is called Tumbling Dice. This is his high rash, uh, high rye mash bill. I think it's 36%. So he's 60, 36, and 4. Straight bourbon whiskey, four-year-old, another example of how blending is so critical and important to get to the final chapter of what a whiskey actually tastes like. His whiskeys actually just came back from the icons of whiskey. He picked up four awards for the representative, the senator, for one of the, the single barrel. David will be here tonight at oh, the good. meet and greet. He'll be yep. here tomorrow in our barrel of Thumbelin Dice, uh, Big Red is on a seven-year-old of Perfect. that. Perfect, yeah, Go. great. This is the four-year-old that we're tasting right here. Huh? When Dave gets here to the, yeah. This is, um, I think this is 50% a, a 100 proof. Oh, yeah. that's oh actually, you're tasting ours right now. Oh, we're tasting yours. Oh, okay, great. Okay, so what are we, what's the, the what's the specs on it? Uh, it is single one, barrel. 114.8. One, 114. Okay. Seven-year-old. Right. Yeah. It's called Big Red in dicing terms when you roll a uh, number seven, it's a Big Red. Exactly. So, when Dave gets here, you'll be able to actually taste them all at his table tonight. Alright, small batch versus single barrel. Neither of these is what? Regular. Legal term. Neither of these is a legal term. We're actually both, in, in, in both cases, depending on the honesty and the integrity of the industry. This is an industry funded by gangsters. Right? <laughs> right? Right? If I've got a still this size, everything coming out of there is a small batch. But if I'm at um, uh, Wild Turkey, I'm going to carefully select certain barrels out of different warehouses and make a unique variation of my standard small batch. Right? Single barrel, obviously, as you know, as a, a veteran barrel picker here, right? Um, 
everything comes from one barrel that goes into the bottle, right? And typically they like to put all the geeky details on it as well. But in, yeah, not, in either case, is there a legal definition? Now, these two have a legal definition. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're still with me, okay? Straight, right? Minimum two years in a barrel and nothing else in there except other straight whiskeys, no additives of anything, right? Pretty much follows the standard rule of bourbon with the addition of the minimum two years in a charred oak barrel. Because bourbon has what as a minimum time? Nothing. Nothing. I can legally take whiskey that has a bourbon mash bill, pour it into a barrel, pour it back out, put it in a bottle, and I can legally call that bourbon. Right? Nobody would, on their right mind would do that now. The commercial day, it would be laughed out of the market. Bonded, right? Uh, our first Consumer Protection Act, 1897, you know, followed up by um, the uh, uh, Pure Food and Drug Act, 1906, right, which got amended again in 1909, um, but essentially a minimum of four years. It fell out of favor. Only uh, Old Forrester actually carried the uh, Bottled and Bond Act all through the 20th century. All of a sudden, when the craft distillers came up, right, they wanted to prove that their stuff was actually old. You start seeing Bottled and Bond actually showing up. Well, now it's very fashionable. Now everybody has to have a bottle and bond. Right? Let's watch some shit burn. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, the Celts, not the Celts, the Celtic people, which were a, um, a non-indigenous, loosely tribe from about 2,500 years ago that we think came actually from the eastern steppes of Asia, of Russia, and then slowly migrated through Europe and, and up into the uh, Scandinavian areas and then, like, you know, ending up over there um, in what's now Great Britain. But, you know, the Franks were part of them as well. Um, and they met the Romans. They invented this idea of actually putting together some slats of wood under pressure in order to make it um, sealed and waterproof. Then they turned it over to the, um, uh, the Romans, who obviously what they do is perfect that and actually made it better. And when you actually watch these guys doing this, it's pretty much watching a Celtic uh, barrel maker from 2,500 years ago. And guess what? There's no gold watches given out in a cooperage. This is some heavy-ass hard work, right? So typically you see a bunch of young people there. All right, Japan, right? Look at this beautiful scene up there. It's serene. It's gorgeous, right? There's, there's clouds and there's ships out there in the bay and there's some dogs in the front. Then we get a little bit closer and it's like, oh my God, those are, that's an American flag. And those are soldiers. This is a takeover. And it's a takeover by this guy, right? Matthew Perry, you know? <laughs> right? Wrong Matthew Perry, right? Right? The Commodore Matthew Perry, right? 1854, shows up in Edo Bay, right? Trying to get these people to open up and actually trade with us and give us some safe harbor for all the whalers that are up there in that area of the world, okay? And he brings all this whiskey on them. Uh, and some fruit trees and some dogs. And, uh, opens up this whole idea of what whiskey can be for the Japanese people, right? It takes 90 years until these three people actually bring it into being. The man in the middle is who? Masataka Tenkatsuru, right? Now known as the father of whiskey, a promising young chemical um, uh, 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 with a chemistry background. His company sends him off to Scotland to learn how to make whiskey, and he comes back with whiskey knowledge and a Scottish wife. Right? Her name is Jessie Roberta Collin, otherwise known as Rita, and they get married much to the displeasure of her mother, right? And they come back into the U.S. now much to the displeasure of his former employer who had set it up so that when he comes back with Scottish knowledge, he's going to marry his daughter. Oh, who's the Scottish one? Right? Okay. At the same time, this guy on the right, Shinjiro Tori, right? who had a long-term, he comes from a family of compounders and what was then known as pharmaceuticals, and he had an import company, and he was importing all of this stuff, you know, the whiskeys, but they were so harsh and terrible, and he would blend them with wine, and he created these products, but he wanted to make whiskey in Japan. So he writes a letter to a, uh, um, a guy in Scotland who is a professor of distilling, and he goes, can you send me a consultant? And he goes, I just graduated one of your 
country people, right? He goes, oh, Masataka Tekatsudo, right? The guy with the Scottish wife. Okay, he goes over, hires him, right? Because now he's out of work because, you know, the, the Japan went into a recession. Uh, what Rita's doing is she's actually teaching English to well-to-do families' children. This is key. This is key, right? He comes over, hires him. They come together to create the first whiskey made in Japan. It doesn't go well because Takatsuru wants a smoky one like the Scots, and he wanted, uh, Tori wanted something that was light and fruity that the Japanese people would like. So he moves him over here. He says, you take care of brewing and brandy over here, and then I'm going to do the blending over here. And then after 10 years of the contract uh, uh, ends up, they, she, what she did was she made all of these business contacts, and they got a group of investors and moved them up to Yoichi, a little tiny uh, fishing village up in the north edge of Hokkaido, and that's where Nika was created. Over here on the right, his distillery eventually became known as Yamazaki and Suntory. And there's a plus one here as well. The three of them. You keep showing up in the entire thing. <laughs> Japanese hierarchy is actually based on the blender. It's the blender who ideates, who ideates what is going to be in that bottle. He gets input from marketing and then gives instructions to productions. So there's this perfect triangle of movement here with the blender on the top. This is Japanese whiskey. When every time you think about Japanese whiskey, you're, you're, you're not. In the West, we, we give a lot of regard to the distiller, right? In the, in the East, it's really all about the blender. And that brings us to this guy. This is the man who put the money up in order to send Takatsuru to Scotland. This is Kishiro Iwa. And he actually takes all of the, uh, the notes that uh, Takatsuru uh, had sent him, and he put them together in a book, which was known as the Japanese Whiskey Bible, which essentially cemented Takatsuru's uh, name as the father of Japanese whiskey, with Rita as the mother, right? And it wasn't until a couple of decades later that his family started seriously making whiskey. And that's the whiskey we're going to taste right now. This is EY. EY whiskey. And again, proving the, the dominance of the blender in here, EY is mostly ma uh, malted mash. Mostly malted mash. Right? Malted barley mash. They have a little bit of corn. They have a little bit of wheat in here. But primarily what they're doing it is that they're actually aging this in wine barrels, ex-sherry, ex-bourbon, new French, and new American barrels. And then again, just like the Canadians, bringing those together to create what's in the glass. When I blind people, when I blind taste people on this, a lot of them don't know that it's whiskey. This is elegant. I don't use the word. Thank you, right? We don't use that, right? But very accessible, highly fruity, right? Has a nice bottom note on this. And they're not afraid of peeing. You get the little bit of the smoke on the back end of that. Beautiful. Yeah. Just like when you taste like Yoichi from, from Nika, right? Love, they love the peeing of that, right? And you taste Miyagakyu and you're not going to get it, right? So two different styles. This is the original stills that were actually made from Takatsudo's drawings that uh, Kishiro Iwai kept and then created the stills based on his original drawings. And this is what the state of Japanese distilling looks like right now. This is probably even an out-of-date um, uh, photograph right here. Um, a lot of now what was known primarily as Soshu now, which is a, a, a distillate that's typically made from rice or from sweet potatoes. Uh, or barley is now being aged and then being sold here in the United States as uh, as whiskey as well because it fits the uh, the standard of cereal grain which rice is. That brings us to our last whiskey and this guy. If anybody were going to pay homage to in, is uh, this man right here, Dr. Jim Swan, probably had more influence on the development of whiskey around the world than any other single person. Pendering, Amru, English Whiskey Company. Kabbalon, and now what's being released now is Lindoris Abbey, where specifically the Scots like to take, I'll talk about this is where whiskey first showed up, and you know, Father John Corr, and things like that. But um, uh, Jim Swan took what was thought of as just 
in information and um, uh, circumstantial information about uh, the aging of wood in, in, uh, in a, uh, aging of whiskey in a barrel and put a scientific parameter around it. This is what we've learned from them. There are three things that happen inside of that barrel, right? When you put, what is whiskey, but what? A solvent. And what do solvents do? They eat things away, right? So it's microscopically eating away on the inside of that barrel, right? It's adding flavor. It's adding flavor. It's adding all, you're getting all the vanillins and all the lactones and things like that. It subtracts, it has a subtractiveness, which is why they'll either um, first uh, toast and then char, right? And so it's going to subtract it. What's it taking out? All those bad flavors that got through the copper still, right? Because that's the first mediation point. The second mediation point is inside of the barrel with the charcoal, right? The third thing is remember that that thing, microscopically breathing, right? That's exchanging air and molecules inside and out that a barrel. So it's essentially oxidizing and changing one thing into another. That's why the barrel is so critical. We were having a discussion earlier about the beginning of the craft movement. They were putting them in 10, 15 gallon barrels. They got number one, then they get number two, number three. And number three is the most important, right? The oxidation that happens only with time, right? Also, angel share, right? Right? So the, the other thing about this is angels are different angels are thirsty for different things, right? So if you're at the top of the warehouse, the angels are thirsty for what? Water. So that means your proof can go up, right? If you're at the bottom of the warehouse, the angels are thirsty for alcohol, which means your proof can go down. Now, extrapolate that out to your general climate. Scotland and Ireland versus Tennessee and Kentucky, right? And then you get to Bangalore, India, right? You get to Bangalore, India, and you're... You're 2% in Scotland, and you're 8% in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm taking 12 to 15% out now, right? So 12 to 15% coming out of the barrel in Bangalore, in India, because of the, the heat and the humidity right there. This literally is one of my, I would put this in my, on my top five whiskeys of all time. Um, I, I just think this is an absolutely brilliant whiskey. It's made as a, as a fusion of peated Scottish barley and unpeated Indian barley that are fermented, distilled, aged separately at the distillery in Bangalore, and then blended, and then aged again in an ex-bourbon barrel. So this is craft and elegance. They're using SWA regulations. Remember, we were talking about India, like anything goes, right? Call it whiskey. But, you know, obviously them and Paul John and a couple others are, uh, they are, are hewing close to the SWA standards of what makes whiskey. But, you know, beautiful. And at 50% alcohol, it's just the right proof. Perfect. This is where the story's going. In the year 2000, there were 60 DSPs in the United States, right? Look where we're at now, right? We just quit counting at 2,200, right? The world, places where they've never made whiskey before are now showing up on the shelves over here. This is exactly the continuing story of whiskey. That's my book. This is what's most important in the entire time, right? <laughs> is that a shot of whiskey is the equivalent of antioxidant potential to a recommended daily intake of vitamin C. <laughs> Do it.